Welcome to the Church Times podcast. Try 10 issues for £10 or two months access to our website and apps also for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash new hyphen reader. This week, senior writer Madeline Davies interviews the Archbishop of Canterbury, who has recently returned from sabbatical. They spoke in his study in Lambeth Palace about a range of topics, including his time spent volunteering as a hospital chaplain during the pandemic, his thoughts on the future of the parish, church plants, clergy morale, and the ministry of the Church of England in a secular society. You can read a write-up of the interview in this week's Church Times. Obviously, you've just come back from sabbatical. So um, what was your kind of state of mind going into it? What, what point were you, were you at? Well, it was that I've never had a proper sabbatical. So I was pretty nervous because I felt very intimidated by going to Trinity Cambridge and what that would be like. And I was um, really worried that whether I would actually get any work done as I wanted to do or whether I'd come back with everything still hanging over me. And there was so much going on here, you know, actually nothing particularly crucial that demanded me being here because I kept doing that while I was away but I was thinking oh I don't know why I ever planned this and then it turned out to be absolutely wonderful. Yeah I was going to ask um, obviously prior to it we had we had Covid and I wondered how that was sort of personally for you and whether you had sort of personal anxieties around um, vulnerable people in your life or whether health is something that you sort of particularly worry about sort of how much it affected you. No I don't I wasn't terribly worried about that. As you know, I was in and out of uh, doing voluntary chaplaincy at St Thomas's, so I saw a huge amount of it. And I was aware that, you know, sort of someone in their mid-60s and asthmatic, I was obviously slightly, I was not particularly vulnerable, but, you know, slightly more so than, say, you would and my mother's in her 90s, but, you know, you just sort of get on with it, really. So I wasn't particularly nervous, no. I was going to ask about St Thomas's because a lot of people have sort of observed that um, COVID was something where people affected by it were very much hidden away and most of us were living these lives in lockdown at home and we didn't see the reality of um, what it looks like to be treated for COVID Mm. and the isolation. are there sort of particular memories that you have or what was your mm. initial reaction when you saw what the reality of being treated for COVID was like? I've spent a lot of time in hospitals over the years. When I was a parish priest, for the last two or three years there, I was um, also on the board of a local hospital and then chairman of it. Um, so I'm familiar with hospitals and intensive care units and critical care and so on. But it was very striking, the incredible change of gear in the NHS, the central attention on the patients, the ability to do things which in the past might have taken a year to do them in a week. You know, just bang, get it done. Don't ask questions, just make it, get it done. So moving people from one department to another because they needed more people 
you know, consultants who might have been doing, I don't know, neuro or might have been orthopedics or something like that and suddenly find themselves back on um, stuff they hadn't done for a long time because that was needed. There was a real wartime atmosphere in it. And this extraordinary commitment of staff, the phenomenal role of the chaplaincy, just welcomed. I can never remember chaplain as a chaplain being, having done voluntary chaplaincy before, being welcomed quite like that by people who had no idea who I was. And then there's always that awful, uh, what's the word, awful reality of people who are terribly ill and are full of tubes and wires and, and you can't speak. You know, you've got, they've had uh, tracheotomies. And there was the integrity of the staff who sang, this is new, we don't know how to deal with this. I mean, that was right at the beginning. A year later, they'd learned a lot. But there was a real integrity, transparency. I do have very, I remember praying with um, a Muslim woman who was dying. I think I probably prayed with more people near death than in the rest of the time I spent as a priest combined, to be honest. Um, it was just every, the whole time. And, and there was this Muslim woman who was very near the end of her life, unconscious. And the nurse said to me, the family just said, please, would anyone pray with her? Because they couldn't get an imam in to see her. And signed up by the bed and prayed for her. I just, there was such a beautiful sense of the presence of God, of the love of God. It was a very profound moment. There was another lovely uh, British Caribbean woman who I remember just holding her hand. Uh, she was very seriously ill indeed, and she couldn't speak because of tracheotomy. And she was just looking at me, and we were communicating just with looks, and that was immensely powerful. And then a nurse, a very senior nurse, I'd been in a ward with, with the senior chaplain, Mia, who very sensibly wouldn't let me out of her sight in case I did something unbelievably stupid, I suppose. And I, um, we did various things in the morning, came out and this nurse followed us out, senior experienced nurse, and just burst into floods of tears. And she said, I'm sorry, it's just, this is like nothing I've ever had to deal with. And it was so moving. And I don't know what her own faith position was, but Mia, she trusted Mia to be able to break down and express her pressure. So it was very moving indeed. Wow. Um, you also sort of move from, from that to going away on your sabbatical. Yeah. Um, what, um, what were you up to during that time? And did you feel that you emerged from it having achieved what you Well, yes. I mean... Um, I've always had this profound interest in uh, the influence of 
Sanskrit texts on the early parts of Leviticus. So I spent most of the time looking at you know, the Holiness Code in the light of some impact of Sanskrit. Because oh, I thought that was deeply relevant to the mid-21st century in a time of pandemic. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> okay, skipping my invented stories of my completely illusory scholarship, too much influenced by George Eliot and... Um, um, who was that? Mr. Yeah, Mr. Kazubon. Well done. Yes, that's right. Um, I, as you know, I, you know, I started working at Canterbury, uh, Coventry Cathedral in two thousand two, and I've worked quite consistently on reconciliation work ever since. And what I wanted to do was sit down, and in a way that made sense in 2021, try and write a book on that was accessible both to Christians but also to the interested um, non-Christian on, or person of other faith or no faith, be a better way of putting it, on, um, on reconciliation. I haven't got a title for it yet, but on how do we go about it why is it so difficult? I mean, the first, it's in three parts. The first bit is, how do you define reconciliation? And why does it matter? That uh, Secondly, why is it so unbelievably rare and difficult? And thirdly, what hope does it bring? And what hope is there of it? The second part is round about a pattern developed by Coventry Cathedral um, of a way of working on reconciliation. And the third part is three chapters, so that's six chapters, and there's three chapters in the third part on the difference course that we wrote and or that the team here wrote and launched, which I did in the early part of my sabbatical with my wife, with Caroline, uh, online with friends who we invited to join us. And we were blown away by how good it was. And that just to try and unpack what is going on in in that course and why it's so effective and why it's so accessible. So try to say to people, try this. And it's been fascinating. I had, from someone who was doing the reading for me, I had lots of, you know, was reading the, I did two drafts and then sent it off and had a holiday. So I had three and, three and a half weeks holiday at the end. But um, the first three months were... Um, most were were um, a bit more than that. Were working on the book in Cambridge, and then two months in France. That included the holiday. And um, one of the people who was reading it, first readers, wrote back and said uh, lots of very powerful critical points, which I'll need to work on for the third draft. But then said equally, I should say, I've been using. It in, I've been using some of the ideas in the office to try and deal with some of the problems we face because it's talking about conflict at every level from our conflict with creation. That's quite a major part of it, the whole climate change thing, which is humanity's war with creation and biodiversity down to issues in family and even issues within oneself and how does one address and all the intermittent things of civil war, of racism and so on and so forth. 
I guess one of the things I wanted to ask about was obviously you'll be aware that um, there was criticism of, of the church's response to COVID with uh, the closure of buildings. And I know you've talked a lot about that already. Um, but I guess something that came up was a kind of the attachment that people have to accessing um, the sacrament, the Eucharist, and the mm. fact that there's a real variety within the church in England. So for some people actually worshipping from home, um, it wasn't enormously traumatic, whereas for other people for whom um, sort of very regular access um, to the Eucharist was sort of very painful. I just wondered if you were sort of conscious of that kind of span of theologies with, within the church and the way in which I guess that became sort of thrown into relief by COVID because people had such, you know, I noticed that people had very, very different reactions to worship from home, worship online for some people. It, it just wasn't that painful and for others it was. Yes, I think we're full of the most, I mean, the church is full of the most extraordinary stories. I mean, you had, I think Dean Robert at Canterbury, you know, with his morning prayer, mm. now has 40,000, 40,000 people using it. Mm. And letters from all over the world where it is clearly ministered. And this is absolutely standard morning prayer with a very brief reflection from a man in his 70s sitting in a cassock in a garden. With, a cat. with, a, with cats and dogs and pigs and birds and, you know, whatever. And I think there's two or three things. One, yes, I really get it. I am a daily communicant. I relish profoundly. I, I benefit hugely from time of silent prayer in front of the sacrament. Those feed and guide me. Those, those the sacrament, receiving the sacrament, these, these are hugely important, and it was horrible not to have that, not to be able to do that. And, and I've said publicly that, you know, the first lockdown, second and third lockdowns, we did things very differently, as you know. But the first lockdown, the closing of churches, there was a great debate amongst the bishops. We, we did go for closing. I supported that. I, in retrospect, I think I was probably wrong on that. I've said this publicly. But I'm also aware that we were getting calls from all kinds of people in our role, not just as a church, but as the Church of England and the Church for England, which is a phrase you'll hear me use again, saying, please, can you set a stringent example? to help us deal with the problem from other denominations and other faiths and from government. And I think in one sense, we did set a very good example. It was stringent, it was difficult, it was very painful, enormously painful for some people. And I wonder if part of it isn't just the cost of being the Church of England. Uh, but. I'm not trying to justify myself. I would do it differently. So something that we're writing a lot about at the moment is this um, sort of movement to, to save the parish, um, mm -hmm. which you're probably um, aware of. Um, I had an interview with um, the Bishop of Sheffield, who has acknowledged... I read it. That, uh, yeah, that there is a... Pete Wilcox, yeah. There is a threat, um, in a sense. I'm you wrote an article on it today, I think. Yeah, it's really yeah. good. 
I wanted to ask you if you can kind of understand that um, anxiety. Because yes. There's often a message from the centre to say, of course, we value the parish, of course, we're not dismantling it, but we know the financial pressures, the closure of churches, the cuts to clergy. So if you could just say a bit about whether you understand that, that concern. I, I profoundly understand it. I mean, the first 10, I assumed when I went to get ordained, that I'd spend my life in parish ministry. That's what I wanted to do. And I spent the first 10 years of ordained life in parish ministry. I was a parish priest, uh, as was the Archbishop of York for much longer than I was. Um, you know, we're absolutely embedded in the parish. I was, this morning I was in parishes in East London, real parishes, with, you know, seeing what, hearing their advice and and th thoughts about the challenges. It was the toughest job I've ever done, either in the oil industry or the church, is to be uh, a parish priest. It was far more stressful than what I do now. Uh, there's, there's, there was then, it was at the time of the church commissioners running out of money, there was a time in the 90s, there was parish share was going through the roof. I mean, it got up 20% a year. Um, numbers of clergy were going down very rapidly. Um, resources were completely absent. The bureaucracy just seemed to weigh on one the whole time. The capacity to get things done, other than just keep the show more or less staggering along the road from one week to the next, was appalling. Um, and it was very lonely. And I, I, I will never, never forget that. At the same time, I am also absolutely certain myself, whatever people say, I've gone through plenty of groups which have said, oh, we need to get rid of the parish system, it's outdated. It's rubbish. Go back when I said earlier, we are the church for England. If we're going to be for England. We have to be in every community, or as many as we can possibly manage. We have to be open to every person, not just the congregation, precious as they are, but also to everybody else in the parish. I had a lovely note the other day from a couple who were the first couple I married as a parish priest, took the married, sorry, I married, that's clumsy language, officiated at the wedding of, as a parish priest. And one was a non-practicing Roman Catholic, the other was a non-practicing Sikh. But they were resident in the parish and therefore entitled to get married in the parish church, so they did. And they sent me a lovely, lovely letter on their silver wedding. And, I, you know, it was really moving. I thought, that's why we did that kind of thing. And it was beautiful. And I baptised their first, first two, I can't remember. And the parish church I was in, I was fortunate, blessed, providentially, whatever, by the fact that the number of people going to church grew a lot, and it grew through the basic disciplines of weddings, funerals and baptisms, through being at the school gate, through running nurture courses, and it was very, by tea parties for those who'd been bereaved by aftercare, by visiting. It was standard parish work. And it wasn't complicated, but it was 
unbelievably hard work and emotionally exhausting. I can't ever remember being as psychologically, emotionally or physically exhausted. So I'm not just in favour of the parish. I am passionate about that the parish is essential. There is no threat to the parish. People will use phrases and words clumsily at a conference. It happens. There is no conspiracy to abolish the parish. Pete was got it absolutely right. The threat to the parish is the last 70 years of decline so that there are fewer and fewer people who can, within the life of the parish church, who are attending and on the fabric committee and finance and and choir and music groups and visitors and bereavement care. That's why numbers matter. If you don't have people, you can't do the job. I wanted to um, sort of draw on that because obviously under your time as Archbishop, we've had renewal and, and reform and a, and a focus on kind of investing for growth and, and turning around the numbers. Um, Which has not so far happened. <laughs> I guess two things that really interested me. One was that in vision and strategy, Stephen Cottrell talked about a huge shift in the tectonic plates of European world culture. So yes. Saying actually, it is partly about what the church does, but actually we do need to look at the context in the West. And then you mentioned um, at some point reading Andy Root's work around ministry yeah. in a secular society. So I guess given that context, do you still feel confident about the potential to grow the church? Because I know sometimes the message that we hear from people is perhaps we do need to accept being smaller and being a sort of faithful remnant because these huge forces are... Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and if that happens, it happens. But it's not us who grow the church, it's God who grows the church. Um, as we were talking about this this morning with these parish priests in his son, it's God who grows the church. And where churches don't... I mean, I, one of the things I've been doing, I was doing during the last lockdown, was uh, every couple of weeks I did a session with anyone who wanted to come online on Zoom in different dioceses. So I went, as it were, virtually from diocese to diocese. And one of the things, one of the stories I told was about a friend of mine um, called Desiree McNawa, who started as a parish priest in Eastern Congo and then really sadly, uh, just over a year ago, died of COVID in his 40s. Uh, and he was a really close friend. It was heartbreaking, leaving a family. and It was just terrible. He did extraordinary work. He had 137 militias operating in his diocese. He had Ebola all over the place. I visited him the October before he died, October 19, and one of the most powerful and moving visits of anywhere I've been in my life. Absolute life-shaping visit. And when I first went to see him in the mid-2000s, late-2000s, we, the government was under siege. There was shelling and stuff. His church had been hit by a shell. And we went out into the countryside and got some refugees where they were trapped because um, there were a lot of women there who would otherwise be raped and get them down into Goma where they were safer. And then we went to a refugee camp. We had about 10,000 people there. 
and there were 250,000 refugees in the area he covered. No resources at all. And I said to him towards the end, I said, Desiree, how do you manage? And he said, I do what God enables me, and the rest is his problem. And I think I'd want to say to clergy, parish priests, chaplains, because the stress on them in the last year has been indescribable as well. Parish priests, chaplains, fresh expressions, pioneer, church plants, you name it, resource churches, the big ones, the small ones, the tiny ones, and everything in between. I'd want to, and to all my colleagues, and to laity, to say, we can only do what God enables us to do, and the rest is his problem. So if you can't do things, don't be guilty, pray, but do what you can, and keep a sane home life, and keep up with your friends, and do what you can having done that, and spend time with God in prayer. If that means we end up as a faithful remnant, so be it. But my bet is if we do go for simpler, humbler, and so on, if we do what God resources us to do, if we don't exhaust ourselves, and if we get rid of guilt, and I'm the champion of self-imposed guilt, as Ruth and Chris will tell you, um, the church, God, God will grow. Here we are in the 21st century, Look what a mess we've made of things at times, in, right back through history. Look what's happened. We've, the country's been conquered in 1066. The, you know, we've, we've been overrun by this, that and the other. We've, we've had plagues and pestilences. We've had civil wars. We've, we've had bishops who thought the best thing they could do was lead troops in battle. And, and we're still here because God's faithful and loves us. And in Jesus Christ, there is always hope. So do what you can, not what you can't. Support one another, get to know, you know, spend time with other clergy and friends and pray together, care for one another. And don't do what you can't do. And don't beat yourself up about what you can't do. So it's a very obscure way round to saying we'll do what we can and trust God and actually I'm pretty confident that will lead to the church not only being around but flourishing. I guess that's sort of linked to um, so Stephen Cotchell talked in Vision Strategy about a lot of weariness and perhaps morale not being at its best and perhaps sort of a weariness with sort of central initiatives. So I think sort of part of the reaction to Myriad was this sense that people were already sort of very tired and then you hear we need 10,000 new churches in the next 10 years. And I think sort of part of the reaction was that actually people felt that they didn't have a lot left to give perhaps. So yeah, but that that's exactly what I'm saying, yeah. that actually we've got, some churches are really well resourced one of the things about resource churches, the ones that are really working well, which is most of them, is they're giving away new churches. They're building new, they're building, they're planting new churches into areas that aren't well resourced, into areas of 
profound deprivation. A lot of the church planting, a lot of fresh expressions, a lot of what is happening in the church is not saying to parish clergy, you don't have any more to give. I know that feeling very, very, very well. It's not saying, never mind, you've got to give more. You've got to somehow plant three churches. It's saying, where you have the resources, take the help. And part of what we've got to say, and Myriad is, I mean, Myriad's only one part of the story. Another part of the story is let's try and lighten the load. You know, make it easier to run ancient buildings, find ways of resourcing. We're not a poor church. As you know, individual, we've got a lot of money. It's not always in the right place. In fact, it's usually not in the right place, actually. And But that's a question. And, you know, the church commissioners were hugely generous last year with massive emergency funds and give away something. I Half a billion is the number in my head every year anyway. But there is a lot of money. Getting it flowing in the right place um, is really challenging. And look at the vision and rather than say, I can't do it, the answer is to that is nobody's asking you to do it or me. They know where they're going for that. They trust that God will equip. If it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. But let's praise God that someone's got a great vision for growing the church and rejoice when people come to faith in Christ. I led a small church that, yeah, it was growing. Big deal. It was still small. I used to go to New Wine. I come away so depressed at what we weren't doing. And and we'd always have a bit of a bicker on the way home. I was saying, oh, we don't do youth work. Children. You know, and my wife would say, no, of course we're not. We're a small church in a small town in the Midlands. You know, we're not HDB. We're not wherever else it happened to be. Don't fret about it. That's their job. Let's do our job. Yeah. I know Stephen Hance has got some work coming out on um, how the CV is perceived and has been looking at um, mm-hmm. sort of research. What, what kind of reaction do you feel that you get out and about? Because obviously people know who you are, you wear a dog collar, and sometimes clergy say, you know, by being very visible, you do find people want to tell you about their own spirituality. Their yeah, they do. Church. I have a wonderful time. That's the best bit of the job. So, I, I, <laughs> last week, uh, I was in Canterbury over the weekend. I was in a, doing some, in some parishes, in a parish on Sunday, a uh, place called Shepherdswell. And uh, we got down there, no, we'd been there all week and uh, working in, in the dances. And... Friday evening, I think it was, I went out to get some fish and chips and uh, was just going down the street. This woman stopped me and she said, you're that Archbishop, uh, standard opening. And I said, yes, I am. How are you? She said, very well, thank you. She had a nice dog. So I said nice things about the dog. 
And uh, she said, I want to ask you a question. So I thought, <laughs> and she said, when we're in such a crisis, how can you go away on sabbatical for a year? And I said, it, it wasn't a year. So she said, what did you do with that year? So I said, it wasn't a year, it was th three months of working and I wrote a book on how we can reconcile families and countries and did a lot of work there. Then I had three weeks, three and a half weeks holiday. She said, oh, sure the newspaper told me you were away for a year. I said, no, I wasn't. So she cheered up a bit at that and was much more friendly after that. So you get all kinds of funny conversations. Um, but in trains, people come up and talk about their spiritual life. It's lovely. Um, it's one of the best bits of the job. Because oh, Andy Root sort of talks about the fact that people still have transcendent experiences. Yes, he does. Things they can't explain, which are weird, but they don't necessarily have a religious framework in which to understand them. But I mean, what do you think is the spiritual sort of temperature of? I think it. I think it, I don't think there is a spiritual temperature. I think in this country there's roughly 65 million spiritual temperatures. And one of the clergy this morning said the rumour of God in this part of London is still very strong. So the spiritual temperature is high. And he said a lot of what we're doing is just enabling people to find the vocabulary to express it. And the place. And, the, and someone else said and it has to be a safe place. Not... They weren't talking about safeguarding, though that's obviously essential. They were talking about a place where they don't feel they're going to be laughed at, you know, and where they don't have to conform too much to other people's rules. But we've been much worse, much worse. And God is unchanging in his faithfulness and love to us. So, you know, it's, there's an element of... It's not that we're doomed... It's a case of don't panic, Mr. Manning. I guess, obviously, sort of one of the things that you inherited as, as Archbishop was a church that was sort of divided over sexuality. And we've had really? <laughs> Why didn't you tell me this, Ruth? <laughs> we've had the, uh, the Church in Wales vote. And I just, yeah. I, I know sort of you're always slightly constrained perhaps about what you can say while LLF is underway, but. What is it that you would hope to hand to your successor? Do you want to hand over a situation where there has been some... Oh, I can answer that one without telling you what we're going to do, because I don't know is the answer, because I'm constrained, as you quite rightly say, by how that is. And unusually, I can answer briefly. I would, I pray to be able to hand over to my successor uh, a church that is able to disagree well on these things. That simple and still love one another, and be passionate and robust, but still love one another. So potentially, in terms of actual teaching or pastoral practice, it might not look different to the situation that you sort of inherited? We will see. Okay. And in terms of the, the time that you have left as Archbishop, what do you think your priorities haven't changed, I'm afraid. I'm so boring. It's, um, it's prayer and religious community. It's reconciliation and learning to be reconciled reconcilers, learning to be people of incredible diversity, disagreement, 
passionate love for each other and passionate love for the world around us. And a church that is learning to be a church that is capable of expressing the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel, without using jargon and while sounding sort of like signed up members of the human race. And um, that's generational change. If I get anywhere, I'll, it's the grace of God. And if it happens, it'll only be the beginning. But I've come back just as passionate about those priorities as when I went away. Perhaps a little more thoughtful around reconciliation, I hope. Um, but not on any kind of downward glide path at the moment. Uh, and a long way away from that. And I think really just seeing more and more clearly, it goes back to an earlier point. I'd have said this even if you hadn't made the earlier point. And it's not a response to, say, the parish. Just more and more convinced of something I've always believed, that the core of the church's witness and evangelism is a community of normal people who can talk normally about their faith to those they love. We are the church for England. Let's be it. I suppose sort of something which Andy Root talks about and, and others is it's it's become potentially quite difficult in Britain to talk about God because the language and the vocabulary has become increasingly alien to people so we're not as in previous generations we don't grow up with a familiarity with with bible with bible stories and, no. and words like sin and grace and mercy they're not really in in circulation anymore so actually having those conversations i, I sort of understand when you see the statistics about anglicans being reluctant to talk about god or to invite them to church to talk about jesus because it can feel that there is this huge chasm but there isn't a huge chasm when they see a community that loves one another, that feeds the poor, that is present in every community. The, the Tosin, who's uh, the wonderful new chaplain here, uh, I can't remember how many meals... He was in charge in uh, their group of churches, where he's just come from, it was in Hackney, of um, their feeding programme. And they did something like quarter of a million, 300,000 meals. You know, feeding, loving and caring for those in need, being alongside people in hospitals, having chaplains in the armed services who are out there facing the dangers and caring for people, being, being in the local parish, the local church, fresh expression, chaplaincy, pioneer ministry, whatever. What will make a difference is if we continue to encourage people that the essentials in the church are that you love God and you love people. And as I said earlier, it's not complicated. It is unbelievably hard work, but it's not complicated. Yes, there's a problem with vocabulary. So we need to speak human and not Christian the whole time. We need to be able to explain very briefly why we're Christians. And people won't always understand it, but they'll understand when they come to church because, I don't know, they've been bereaved or 
they're just puzzled about things or they just want to see what the building looks like. And someone's really friendly and doesn't lecture them or sermonise, but just chats them and they think, oh, they're really nice. Yeah, there's something about that place. I think um, Andrew Root also talks about perhaps the main thing that a pastor can do in a secular age is, is teach people how to pray. Yes. Um, I was wondering what, what, what's your experience of prayer and... Um, is it something that somebody sort of taught you to do? Or do you think that you did it? No, um, yes, people did teach me and they've taught me all sorts of different... I mean, I'm a prayer magpie that I'm constantly learning new things and where I see something shiny, I pick it up and try it. And that's And so I'm constantly learning from others about prayer. I'm constantly being reminded in scripture about prayer in my own Bible reading. I'm constantly relishing afresh the use of the offices, of the Psalms in the offices. Um, so my experience of prayer is, by the grace of God, very broad-based in terms of tradition and is always learned from others and has its ups and downs, but is the absolute, together with the reading of the Bible quietly, meditating on it, is the absolute foundation. And that's irrelevant to being an archbishop. It's just relevant to being a Christian. I think sometimes when I'm in conversations with people around sort of how do we save the church of England I think you know as much as we say that we mustn't act out of anxiety people do look at the graphs every year and it's hard yeah, not, me too. not to worry it is really hard not to worry I think people often and say actually it does come down to we just, we just have to pray it's prayer but it's also prayer and response it's prayer and I'm sorry I'm very repetitive but it Desiree liberated me from feeling that everything was my ultimate fault. Yes, I'm accountable, and I will be accountable. I really, you know, I will stand before God in, and be judged. And there'll be all kinds of things, and part of it will be judged to be judged on my, not on the graphs, but on who I was as Archbishop. And, you know, hopefully that's... Uh, well, I don't know. But it, it's so, but that will be about relationships and love and holiness and lots of other things. I've still got to learn a lot about. Kind of linked to my last question, which is obviously you're written about a lot. I've noticed. Um, do you have a biggest frustration in terms of something that you think is kind of misrepresented or misunderstood about? Oh. I think one of them, it's important, I think your job, you know, writing, journalist job generally, journalist S apostrophe job is incredibly difficult. It is frustrating when a 2D version of you goes up uh, and becomes a straw man, in my case, to shoot at. You know, that's... But it's life. It, it's the nature of the, of the work. I think my probably my f biggest frustration is people say, 
Oil Industry, HDB, Archbishop of Canterbury. As though, I mean, I, I didn't actually darken the door of HDB for 25 years at one point, because we were all over the country in areas that were totally un-HDB-like. And I was doing parish work, or um, I was in Liverpool or in Coventry, just working, doing the normal work of a normal priest in a normal way. And it's not that those things weren't important. They're hugely important. I'm hugely, I'm hugely grateful for them. But it's very 2D, 2D version. The 3D is, well, like all of us, it's much more complicated. All right. So I went to Eton. Um, wasn't my choice. I, I, I owe them a huge amount. They gave me a fantastic education. But there were a million other really important parts of my life as well. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more. The music for this podcast was provided by Sought After Sounds. Tune in next Friday for the next episode. Thank you.